Hello, and welcome to Blackbox Green Room, a podcast presented by Dirty Rascals. In this series, we give writers a chance to air their dirty laundry, otherwise known as their bottom of the draw plates. As always, I'm with my co-host, Mr. Daniel Spicer. Dan? Hey, up. That's Dan. Uh, and this week, we are with the lovely uh, Miss Sophia Loiner, who uh, has flown all the way from New York, not for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> hey, how are you guys? Yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Why not? Um, so, uh, to start off the podcast, um, we always ask writers just to kind of explain uh, a little bit about themselves as a writer, like how that started, and then also a bit about the play that we're talking about in particular. So, mm. you could get started, that'd be great. Um, I, well, I guess I always wanted to be an actor, because I love being the centre of attention. Uh, but, uh, so, I acted all throughout uni, and then I wanted to be a director, but didn't get in anywhere for directing school. And then there was this competition to write a play for the London Student Drama Festival and I um, had just finished directing a show so I had post-show blues and it was like one Sunday I went home to my parents' house and I just wrote this play called Save and Quit which is about two people from London because I wanted to write something about London for the London Student Drama Festival because that made sense to me and obviously I'd grown up in London so I did that and then it did well because of the amazing actors obviously they were great and uh, then I wrote another half of that, then I went to Edinburgh, then I really wanted to write and I got onto this programme in New York and now I guess I am a writer. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to note, that play that she said she just like wrote one time <laughs> after she decided that she directed and she was, is now published and was on uh, the Vaults Festival and this kind of stuff. So yeah, like, by Amazon. Amazon, yeah. Yeah. Amazon, what is it part of? Vaults Plays? Uh, plays from the Vaults 2. Plays from the Vaults 2. So. Or buy it from someone who pays their taxes. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Responsible okay. plugs from Dirty Rascals. Um, cool. Okay. Um, and then in terms of this play, do you want to tell us a bit about the history of it? Yeah. So uh, I really wanted to do this program in New York. It's at Tisch. And one of the requirements for the course was to write a full length play. So I wrote this play and I guess I was preoccupied with it. And it oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because at that time I was also finishing... Um, therapy I'd been um at the Tavistock in Hammersmith and I'd been there for about three years and I think it was in one of my last sessions I asked if I could charge my phone and I mean I saw those guys every week for three years and asking if I could charge my phone they freaked the fuck out they were like uh they had to check with each other and I was like what do you think is gonna happen cool um should we have a gander at uh, clip number one Dave two would you like a cup of tea? Mm-hmm. Would you like a cup of tea? I'm going to make one. Oh, yeah, thanks. How'd you take it? A dash of milk. Okay, then. As she goes to leave. How do you take it? What? How do you take your tea? Just so I know, for, like, the future. Oh, um, I take it black with a sugar. Like your men. What? Sorry, um, sorry. Ah, stupid joke. Unusual. Take it black. Is it? Maybe not. Sorry. There's an awkward pause and Angela leaves the room with a small smile on her face. 
So, um, <laughs> in that clip, we get a little Raise taste. A joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we get a, we get a taste for some of the like kind of humor that is very workplacey in a sense. Um, what what kind of drove the style of humor that we do see in this play? Mm. Um. Well, I think one of the ways that people become friends, especially in the workplace, is you know, goofy awkwardness, which is interpreted as humour. And I think that is like a, something that I wanted to do and uh, something I think is one of the strongest bits of this play is those like first 20 pages when they're becoming friends. Um, yeah, and also I was just, I was watching a lot of The Office. I think I didn't, shouldn't lie about that. <laughs> and I think this is very like TV these like short snappy scenes the like your men joke yeah. uh well obviously in that clip we've we've got two uh female actors mm. um but it's you know clear and apparent that um jeremy uh who makes that joke is male um is there something important to you in that clip or maybe in the play more generally um about the gender dynamics within a workplace yeah for sure for sure. And I, like, tried my best to sort of, like, flip him because I wanted this young, goofy guy who doesn't know anything about women, incredibly awkward around women, which is duplified, duplified? Tripled by the fact that she's a middle-aged woman who's cold and isn't a mother figure. So, yeah, and I, I, that also escalates with the with Steph, the young girl. He, yeah, he's just classic, dorky guy whose masculinity is like ricocheting off the walls of this decaying office. And I also think Jeremy works well because he he wants something, you know? He wants to make a difference. And I feel like once you prop your characters up with that, they come to life. So characters with good intentions are always like fun, dramatic people to write because it always goes wrong, you know? Also in that clip, we hear a lot about... Um, or Tea. Yeah. <laughs> Plays are really boring when it's just two people talking. And having an object changes dynamics. Um, and you can, like, unlock different conversations, different passageways, if you have an object, a prop on stage. And I always try and do that when I'm writing a scene. But sometimes I just, like you know, don't think about it. I'm like, where are they? Tea, fine, done. And sometimes I'm like, wouldn't it be interesting if they were at a restaurant, they were having a slice of pie and she was trying to get him to eat the pie and he's trying to break up with her and then he starts eating the pie at the end of the scene and what does that mean? Like, that's cool. Um, and like use that to sort of speak for the dynamic and then you can just get rid of awful exposition and all, you know, it, it says everything you need to know with the, with the object. Cool. Um, I'm ready for another clip. So am I. There was a road ran past our house, too lovely to explore. I asked my mother once. She said that if you followed where it led, it brought you to the milkman's door. That's why I have not travelled more. Shutting the fridge door. What? It's a poem. Sorry. Did you write it? Of course not. It's by Edna St Vincent Millay. You like her then? Oh yeah, she's wonderful. Jeremy gets up and goes into the office. 
he types on his computer, calling from the kitchen. What are you doing? Looking her up. I finally be given a tiny bit of information about you, so I'm going to follow the lead if you don't mind. Well, actually, I think I do. Shouldn't have let that slip then, should you? Here we go. Let's have a look. Unexplorer. Oh, that's the one you just read. How about grown-up? I think that's enough, please. Oh, come on. You like hello? Would be nice to have a little poetry in the early afternoon now. Okay, so... Um, was it for this I uttered prayers and sobbed and cursed and kicked the stairs and now, domestic as a plate, I should retire at half past eight? Wow, very depressing. You sure... You sure you're a fan? Looks through the door to see tears in her eyes. Oh, I'm sorry, Angie. I'm fine. Jeremy doesn't say anything. Look at that. Learning all sorts about me today, aren't you? Um, also, in that clip, we get a lot of... Uh, well, we just get like a few poems from, from someone that's not you. Um, <laughs> how, uh, yeah, how does it come about that you put in stuff that's like not your yeah. own writing in your own writing? That is... In all my work, I just like to have people who are better than me express what I want to express. I was real clumsy in this one, though. This poetry, I don't know. I'd like it to be in there, but it's, I don't know. Angela wouldn't volunteer that. And I don't know. I'll have to rethink that. But in other stuff, um, you know, I have like Woody Allen and Skylight and Saving Grit, like huge chunks that the publisher was like, you can't have these. This is not <laughs> your writing. And I'm like, um. And, but I also think it's a really important moment. Like Jeremy's like, you've given me something. And I feel like there is a way that I could sift that out a bit more artfully. Yeah. That she is a bit more closed off, but she does let slip. She lets something slip mm. and that makes her vulnerable and then it creates a rift in their relationship which is doing well and I think the instincts are there like I'm trying to do an event and a consequence but I just kind of like this play it sort of just sits in the middle because you know everyone's afraid to write conflict at the I think I think that's a very like new writer thing that I'm still struggling with like you don't you need to push everything to the natural furthest conclusion and there's such a unwillingness to do that because humans don't do that. People don't. People don't fight. And I think, you know, there is a balance to be struck between just have people yelling at each other and fighting and everything happening and it being awful, people dying, and then not having anything at all. And I think there's a nice midway, which is, like, hard to do, and I think when writers get it, they're very successful. But it's like conflict is two people holding hands but not getting along and that's just like really sad and I think that's what like the heart of human conflict is isn't it because if someone's yelling at you you'll leave unless you love them and then you're gonna figure it out Davo fucking kick us with another clip mate sorry are you okay he pulls up her sleeves and inspects her arms are you asking as my manager no or? no of course I'm not asking as a as a as a friend well then 
I'm having a bad day. Can I come in? Angela steps aside and lets him in. What time is it? Just gone 12. Oh dear. Are you hungry? I've got some leftover spag that I can heat up. Yeah, that would be great, actually. Angela removes a bowl from the fridge, takes the cellophane off and heats it in the microwave. She does this very slowly. She's wearing a dressing gown. The sound of the microwave is the only noise. Finally, it dings. Cheers. It's hot. Watch out. George eats. He sighs. Have you got anything to drink? I've got water. Oh, yeah. Okay. Water. Thanks. She pours him some. He takes a small sip and leaves it untouched for the remainder of the scene. Why are you here? I told you, to see if you were okay. Did you fuck that nurse yesterday? Ange, is that what this is all about? I want to be faithful. We don't have to go through this again. I can't keep being this person. Ange. Poor Helen. Oh, it's poor Helen now, is it? It wasn't poor Helen then. Look, Ange, I don't feel that way about you anymore. Angela looks at the floor. I know. At all? George looks guilty. No. So George is like supposed to be like, oh, like a really posh, like, Ange, darling, darling, Ange, right, okay, right, 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 right. Francis Chardonnay, right, right, right. Anyway, just, I feel like that. I was it, say, what difference does that make to you? Tell you, yeah, yeah. Mm, in that, just people who talk like that, are just knobs. Like more, like even if they're great people, they just come across as like, and I feel like in that scene, it's like, um, oh, do you want some spag? And it's like, oh yeah, that'd be great. Oh yeah, that'd be great. Instead of, you know, it just makes such a, uh, the, the timbre of the voice is so much more blaring, especially in this sort of dark room of this depressed woman and she's pulled down all the blinds and she's sad. And then this ball of, energy comes in and he's just like such an arsehole um yeah I think that makes and yeah I think that's important just to make him Mm. more of a threat I mean he is an arsehole Mm. especially in this scene Mm. it feels to me like um there are lots of situations and some of them are valid and some of them aren't where someone is someone who should be on the receiving end of care in a situation ends up caring for the person that is like supposed to be there to give them care. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be a really touching, beautiful moment in life that you can look back on mm-hmm. with like, oh, you know, it was a sad time, but that was a really beautiful moment of connection. And other times, like in this scene, it just feels wrong. It feels backwards and it feels like someone's having advantage taken of them or mm-hmm. something like that how do you feel I don't know this isn't a therapy session but how do you feel about that dynamic in this scene what that functions as like yeah I mean that's interesting that you said that because the sort of the flip of the caretaker was something that was very front of my mind with Angela and Jeremy and with this it was less about flipping of care and it was more about the obligation of caring and the sort of it frustrates me in life when people don't pretend harder. I think it's just like, I know you don't care, but you can act like you care a bit more. Is that going to cause you any problems? Or is that, you know, like... And it's like the selfishness of some people to, like, meet someone halfway. Um, And at the same time, I think on a rewrite of this, I'd love to explore, like, why George is so unwilling 
to offer a hand out because I've been there when people are so mentally unwell and they you just you know you can't do anything for them and you can't give any more of your own dwindling time and mental health to them it's not healthy so that's why you take a step back and you can come across as a bitch then and I think that's something that's like not quite unlocked in this scene um but something that I would like to explore but I think in this scene I just genuinely wanted to be like the obtuseness that some people have and the audacity that some people have should we have another clip I'm worrying that my mum is is not out there looking for me, I suppose. I know that sounds... It's it's silly. <laughs> Never mind. No, go on. Angela hesitates. Please, go on. If you want to. So you're... You're waiting there trying not to panic and then you start worrying about whether she's, she's looking for you or whether she even knows you're gone and you have to bank on the fact that your mum loves you enough to come find you and the longer you wait, the more you convince yourself that she isn't coming and, and that she doesn't love you and, and this was all just an, an elaborate ploy to get you away from her, that, that you're a burden and your family doesn't want you or love you or care for you. And you, st you start thinking if there was anything you could have done to prevent this from happening Maybe if you'd been better behaved, eaten the dinner she cooked for you last Tuesday instead of insisting on fish fingers or getting a re better report card or, or, or something. And, and just as you're sure that she's left you to fend for yourself in the vegetable aisle, she comes round the corner looking all flushed and flustered, arms outstretched. And you relax as all that worry and fear dissolves and you hug her back and know you're safe but but you can't help but remember all those fears that had been so convincing just 20 seconds ago and and you know how tangible the other alternative is of her not coming back yes and and as you leave the supermarket, you try and push those thoughts out of your mind, but there's something that keeps nagging at you. There will come a point in your life when you will be separated and you will be all alone in the supermarket. I can't say I've ever thought about it like that before. Well, that's not how children think about it, I suppose. Of course. I feel stuck in that three-minute limbo before she comes back. I keep expecting her to come round the corner any second. Trolley full of food. So, uh, in the clip we've just heard, Angela's talking about her mum dying, using what for me is a really really like beautiful and resonant metaphor or analogy or whatever the right word is um that's very kind of everyday and in my mind at least that is the hallmark of a Sophia Loyner play is connecting to something inexplicably grand and 
emotionally vast through something minute and everyday and like universal in our experience right the foreword of my book (laughs) (laughs) Uh, lol um thank you that's very nice i try and do that so thanks when you say you try and do that like how how does a moment like that come about um honestly that one was uh i was like had nothing going on apart from like you know i have to get into tish and i would wake up every morning at seven and in the house alone and it was dark outside this fucking country is fucking shit um and it would be dark and i would write and then i'd stop and go to bed because i was sad and you know it was just like that and i just i don't know i think this just came out i actually didn't consciously work on that metaphor i just it made complete sense to me and just listening back to it now i'm like oh i like yeah it's so scary something that i'm like still terrified of being left alone in the supermarket yeah let me let me phrase a question in this way then is there what's the kind of experience for you where you like click where you realize these two things match up or you can put them next to each other and they'll they'll have this explosive power um honestly i don't know till it's read aloud in a room and it goes quiet like that i was like yeah this has to stay in a second draft Mm -hmm. because i felt you guys and i was like cool um uh honestly like i feel like if it moves me it's probably going to move someone else mm-hmm. so yeah i'm trying to do that it's so hard to be like honest with yourself though like um yeah i feel like i used to be better at that when i was thinking less i used to be more connected with like my gut and feel like oh that was like something about that was really moving let's think to be honest i didn't even think what's moving about that i just like wrote it i have a thing um it's kind of selfish but the um one thing you've mentioned a few times and you mentioned just now is this process of um coming to consciousness about your practice and as you go through a period of training and as someone who's interested in training and is going through a period of training myself um it's it's an interesting what feels like uh often there's two steps back with every one step forward um how how is that as an experience for you as a writer and like do you feel um do you feel that something that you have the uh i guess like the the space and the uh ability to to come to terms with or is it something that you kind of grapple with yeah just be interesting to hear you speak about yeah that. i mean i could talk about this for ages there's so many different like ways that i think about it i hate it i really hate being taught at the same time that you're being asked to create because they just don't go together and um you know being asked to present pages before they're ready is just the worst feeling in the world. I hate it and we're all kind of competitive on the course and it's just awful. Um, And then also there's a sort of thing that I'm in where it's like, did I write better or was I just more stupid and thought I was writing better? Am I getting smarter now? Is that gonna help my writing or is it gonna make it worse? Is the work I am producing now worse than it was a year ago? Is that because I am getting worse? Or is it because I am 
you know, struggling to keep up with the pedagogy and once that sinks in, it's going to be even better. You know, it's just like an endless spiral. Like, why am I here? Um, so many great, like, I was doing this before. This just made me conscious of it. That can't be good. Or maybe that's the best thing ever. And um, right at the end of this term, I like wrote a second draft of a play that had been one of the worst things I'd ever written. Like worse than the shit you write in your diary when you're 12 and you write little plays. Um, but I did a rewrite of it and I was like, something just unlocked and I was like, oh my God, these things that they've been teaching me have sunk in and I did something quite difficult there and I'm quite proud of that. Ah, oh. <laughs> like maybe there's hope. But then that could have just been like fatigue. <laughs> and me thinking that it's better and I could look back on it and be like nope same thing as always <laughs> um so yeah I think um it's always so hard and also it's just like you can't look to the generation above you because some of my idols never were taught some of them were Kenny Lonergan did my program but it sounds like he hates any mm. rules right sounds like he rejected everything but maybe he needed to learn them in order to reject them I don't know I really like I really like the idea that you're being trained to rewrite, not to write, because that and that yeah. um, and that that first impulse maybe has to come from like something more guttural, and that like yeah, it's that rewriting that yeah. that needs to. Absolutely. We both we all looked at David, um, but then we realised <laughs> that it's an audio medium, uh, and so we need to say, David, can we have another clip, please? <laughs> Helen. Helen stands up abruptly. Hi there, hi. Uh, would you like to follow me and I can explain to you somewhere a bit more private what, what's going on? What's going on? Would you like to follow me? What's going on? Someone tell me what's going on. The doctor looks around, not wanting to cause a scene, so walks closer to her and speaks in a lower voice. OK, Mrs Barnes, I want to reassure you that your husband is not in any immediate danger. He is sedated and safe. Do you follow? Helen nods. Unfortunately, we've had to detain him due to a violent outburst that involves some hallucinations. Has anything like that happened before? Helen shakes her head. Nothing at all similar? I, I don't know. OK, not to worry. We don't have to discuss that right now. But we do suspect this episode may have been brought on by him consuming large quantities of alcohol. We've been informed by some of Georgie's colleagues that he is perhaps a frequent and heavy drinker. Would you agree? Helen blinks at her. I understand this must be a shock to you, Mrs Barnes, but I'm going to have to ask for your consent to our treatment of your husband. Does that sound okay? Helen nods. The doctor warmly smiles. Don't you worry. We'll just need to find a bed for him in a psychiatric ward. Hopefully one close enough to home so that you can visit him often. We will then embark on a thorough evaluation and attempt to diagnose your husband. And we'll then use that diagnosis to get him the best form of treatment that's out there at the moment. Okay. Didn't he just be... drunk? I can understand why you would think that, but unfortunately, with the indication of acute auditory and visual hallucinations... We need to keep him here to make sure he doesn't harm himself or anyone else. Are you Are you sure? I'm afraid I am. It's all explained in those forms that you're holding. Do you have any other questions? Helen shakes her head. OK, then. I'm going to have to ask you to have a look over those papers and return them to the desk as soon as possible. Filled out, of course. OK. Helen nods like a child again. OK. 
I'll be back soon to give you updates. Wait, how long will you be away for? Well, I'm afraid that's difficult to predict. The average stay in a psychiatric inpatient facility is four to seven weeks. And then he could be with an outpatient clinic for much longer. An outpatient clinic? Yes, that that's a weekly, sometimes more, appointment with a psychiatrist. I know what it is. Excuse me. How ironic. <laughs> go on, go on, go on. Okay, um, I just, this plotline is awful. I struggle so much with third acts, climaxes, everything, and I just, that line, how ironic, was me being like, this is not good, this is too neat, and it doesn't work, and also doesn't make sense. And I, you know, the interesting thing to go down would be like how alcoholics are treated in the mental health unit because they're not it's so it's another springboard between this is alcoholism this is mental health da, 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 da. where do we put them no way would he be committed i don't know what i was on i was obviously on a deadline um yeah so that's not good so sorry just very briefly for a bit of context for the listener um at the end of act two uh Steph, the young girl, she kills herself and um, Angela Angela gets fired and falls out with Jeremy and then the start of the third act, um, Angela shows up at the hospital to f- and because she's been called because George, her boss, has hit Jeremy over the head and has been having a fit, having an episode, they've taken him in, this is his wife getting the lowdown. Um... And I think, like, you know, my instinct was like, oh, I love stuff where, you, where the audience has to catch up, but this was all it was, and I didn't have anything to catch up to. Um, uh, but I do love all of my work. There's um, something about doctors, hospitals. I spent a lot of time in hospitals growing up because of um, mum and dad. So I love, I love, I think it's so interesting, dynamics with patients and doctors and relatives and doctors just doctors in general more weird people so and i think it's it's actually really dramatic because doctors by nature don't say what they mean <laughs> and we know they don't and it's this weird sort of society play that we all play a role in and it's really performative and it's amazing for dramatic scenes and in all my plays it's about sick people and doctors and how meticulous are you about like individual phrasings of lines really meticulous and when it comes to actors saying your lines are you very kind of strict on um i'm not strict unless it sounds wrong because sometimes the way i wrote it isn't how people like i got it wrong or it doesn't match speech pattern of an actor. So if they like carry forward the thing that I'm going for, but change the phrasing, I'm so fine with it. But sometimes like the rhythm is wrong and they can't hear it. And I'm like, yeah, no, say it like I wrote it and words and stuff. It is interesting. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's funny, you know, I know, uh, you know, me and, um, Danny Cook, who we've spoken to on this podcast, have very, very different intuitions about this. I think some of the playwrights we'll be talking to um, later on in, in our recording series um, have very different impulses to me as well and maybe kind of go even further than you and, and they are kind of more towards that bend where they're, they're really very meticulous. Yeah. 
I mean, it really depends on, like, the style of your voice as a writer. Because, I mean, I aim for naturalism and I know there is, like, an inherent rhythm in my writing. And I recognise that now. But it's not crimp or pinter or, you know, it doesn't have a really unreal, uncanny rhythm, which should be obeyed, you know? So, yeah. which I think a lot of playwrights have and that makes it really important. Right. Yeah, I think it's interesting because it, it is, it can be about power with that idea of like, what does it mean to be an author, like an author or to be in like in that making process? And I think that it's, it's lovely to hear you say that, which is like that what is important is that, that yeah, the, that the sense of what is there is there, and that and when when it feels wrong, it's not because it's like, you know, it's not as I wrote it, darling, but it's yeah. because it's it doesn't have the sense, yeah, which is absolutely. Yeah. I have this teacher, Susan Laurie Parks, name drop number gazillion trillion. <laughs> um, she is amazing. You should read her play. She's won Pulitzer prizes. She's fucking. I can't believe that I'm in the same room as her once a week. But she always has this thing like it's not about the playwright. It's about honoring the play, and she has this kind of spiritual approach to it that it's sort of this orbiting thing and everyone needs to pay attention to it specifically so the playwright should only speak up when that is not being honored and i'm pointing to the orbing play for listeners <laughs> and it's just like you know you can't have an ego about it even though plays are so personal and everyone brings their stuff to the table and it was i wanted <laughs> this this might not make the cut but one thing that i'm uh interested in uh We've spoken a little bit about uh, the space that writers take up in a rehearsal room, and it seems like you're talking about that a bit now, um, with relationship to yeah to your writing. Like what? Yeah, just just speak to like what that relationship is for you. Is it like what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, something I'm still trying to figure out. Obviously, because I direct, um, and I directed Save and Quit, co-directed it, and that was like so important to me. Um, and ideally, I'd love to direct my stuff and just work with a really good designer. But I know that that's not the, not likely until I get to a position. I don't know. I just don't. Also, a part of me thinks that, you know, having a director does bring fresh eyes and makes it a better piece of theatre. And I think that is true, too. I don't know. I'm really torn about it. It depends who the director is. I've worked with some awful directors, worked with some absolutely brilliant ones in terms of my writing. So... It's so tricky, it's a gamble. I don't know, you just want someone who really gets it. It always surprises you who gets it, which I think is a nice joy. <laughs> I have a very mini clip that uh, David's lined up for us, which hopefully we will hear now. Then just sign... Is he a, a nice man? Angela nods and smiles. I'm not sure if he's a nice man. Very mini, indeed. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason that I wanted Naughty to play... Naughty or nice. <laughs> <laughs> Helen is, to me anyway, a little confusing as a character. But this is a moment where we get, like, just a glimpse of, like, a huge world behind what we get to see. What do you think of Helen? Like, what, what, what's going on? I really like her, guys. I like Helen. She I makes, like Helen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting out I like her because of that, what you just played. And also, she makes a really strong choice. She leaves. Whoa, that's cool. That's the strongest choice in the whole fucking play. Um, yeah, 
I don't know, maybe I should combine her and Angela. Maybe that'd be cool. Um, she's weird. I think she was introduced to be a add-on, like, or a, someone for Angela to play off in this act. But then I think I was basing her on someone I knew, so she's really vibrant and real, and I think mm. she just steals the show a bit in the third act. <laughs> Should we have a real clip? I'm learning Spanish. Every Wednesday evening, I go to a two-hour Spanish class for beginners. I had to miss it tonight to come here. I'd like to learn Spanish. You should. The woman who leads the class is... She's fun. She's warm and wears clothes that make her look nice. I was going to tell her tonight that she looks nice. She moves really well, very uh, comfortable in her own skin. She wears uh, ankle bracelets and I can tell she would be a good dancer. She's from South America. Venezuela, I think. I can't remember though. I want to ask her, but I think that might be rude. Asking again, like I haven't paid attention the first time. She's always smiling. I think I'm going to go to Spain soon. How nice. I don't know how long for. Another strong reaction from Sophia. <laughs> go on, hit us. I have no idea. I don't know. I just don't know what that is. It's some casual misogynist exoticism from me, isn't it? I don't know, it's got this weird thing of Spain that Angela is gripping onto and I feel like, the again, the instinct is right. She needs something that she's, like, sacrificing by being here and she needs to have a want now to indicate that she's doing better. I don't know. I just kind of like that when I wrote it and I think I loathe it now. I, don't, I just... Uh, mm. I feel that as a woman, when you see other women and you're like, oh, you are such, like, a good woman. You are beautiful and you have it. And you're like, <laughs> I don't know. And I just kind of like that little, I don't know what that is, though. It's plonked in there and not picked up. Hit us with another clip, Dave. I put my number in her phone. Why on earth would you do that, Jeremy? I don't know. She would come out of a session in tears. I told her she could talk to me if she needed. I, I wanted, wanted to... Wanted what? Nothing like that. Nothing like what you're thinking. What am I thinking, she Jeremy? She didn't have the same doctor for longer than three weeks. I just... She needed someone. But why make yourself that person, Jeremy? How could you be so stupid? I, I, I thought... That... I thought I could help her. I thought... I thought I was good enough to help her. Oh, God, I'm so ashamed. It's all my fault. Well, you don't know that. She asked for my help. She said she was struggling and she said uh, she was scared and she, she asked for my help she asked for my help and I didn't do anything I should have told just just told you or George but I just I knew I, I had done something wrong I thought I could fix it you're always saying how naive I am I blamed you and George 
I blamed you and now George is and I just I was just helping myself I'm so sorry I'm just so I'm so sorry I should have I should have helped her that's why I got so mad at you but you were right it wouldn't have helped I should have flagged her I should have done something I was just being so fucking selfish he hits his hands into his head Angela grabs them and holds them calmly stop that please look it came from a good place you made a mistake but she would have done what she did sooner or later it's not your fault she called me 13 times that day Angela is stumped. Jeremy realises that she can't find an excuse for him. The gravity sets in. I can't believe this has happened. It's too fucking much. It'll be okay. You know now. I won't tell anyone. You'll be able to keep working. You think I care about that? No, I... You think I'm like that? No, of course not. I I, I just... I don't want to work here anymore. Okay, that's okay. I'm sure there are openings in other clinics. No, no, I mean, I don't want to work here. He gestures to where they are. I don't want to work here in hospitals with sick people, with sick head people, drawing pictures with sick head people. He puts his head in his hands and cries. She reluctantly comes out with... Hey, it's okay. Hey, you've had a weird, long day. You're exhausted. You'll feel better about it in the morning, once you've got some rest. Oh, I've been thinking about it for weeks. I thought I had it figured out, but I don't think I could do this one. His tears well up again into sobs. I'm so sorry. Shh, shh, it's okay. You don't have to decide now. I can't do it. He folds into her like a child. She reluctantly rubs his back. Reluctant but maternal image of her comforting him. Shh. It's okay. You'll be okay. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Fade to black. Finn. Finn. Fucking hell. I love the Finn. No. I'm such a fan of the Finn. Finn. Stop. <laughs> Was into my French... My French neo-noir. Um, sorry, do you have a question? It's nice to hear your reaction sometimes at first, before. Um, I had a, a chameleon of emotions there. One, it is predictable, so I don't like it. You just know that that's going to be the end. Um, what I do like about it is that the, you know, the characters have changed. And sort of like the kind of complicated thing that like the NHS has broken him, but in that it sort of saved her. And I think that means I've got to kill my darlings and get rid of the Spanish class. Like, she she can't be better before this, right? And I think often with um, people who are struggling, like, the strength that is required of them to take care of other people is what gets them better. And I think that is, like, the root of the play and what 
it needs to be the evoking shift and da da da. So I think like underneath there is something there. It's just very predictable, very exposition-y. Also, why didn't I write the scenes with Jeremy and Steph? They're golden. These are gonna be amazing scenes. Like, also we get to like move out of like the adult like the space. I just I there's this car park outside the Tavistock and I just picture them there. What are they gonna do? They're gonna walk around Hampstead, look at the nice houses. I wanna know. Yeah, so I think once I write those, that could be really fun. That car park, there is, uh, in the lead up to the end of the play there, we get quite a lot of information about Jeremy's fuck ups. Um, and it feels like perhaps some of the more kind of like traditional, if you were to break down the play into like events or mm-hmm. that kind of thing, a lot of those kind of actions that drive those events forward um come from the mistakes of men Mm. in the play um how does that how does that fit in yeah for sure i mean yeah yeah need we say more um (laughs) i think it's something i don't know i'm always like yeah i did something i did i i i wrote a play that's good for women and then the final image of this is like a like a restore to the natural order where the woman is forced into her maternal role and is happy and content with it and I mean I'd like to think it's complex and then I'm like reclaiming motherhood as something that should be you know something to aspire to and actually uh, amazing blessing and better for the mother right I don't think I am I did think I'm so affected by my society <laughs> but i think but to me it's about stability though i don't think it's that i don't it doesn't feel like a and like, i feel right. wrong but it doesn't feel to me like you're making like a moral a moral claim at the end it's not that angela is, mm-hmm. is morally better but it's that what what is required for her to stabilize in the society that she lives in is to adopt that's i mean that's yeah, at least that's how i feel like. yeah for sure but like, wouldn't it be great if she could find another course, role yeah. which would give her stability we've been talking about it a lot and uh, I feel like I know what your answer is going to be to this because of the way you've been talking. But at the end of the podcast, we always ask our writers. I'm going to get rid of it. Ah, oh, no, nah, you're gassed. <laughs> you've, been, you've been talking about rewriting it so much. Yeah. So are you going to hone it or disown it? And Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, hone, for sure. Sick. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like, where's the big play about the NHS? Sorry. Why hasn't it been written yet? Better start these rewrites speedily. Got that money that I'm wanting. Yeah, it's going to be a really interesting piece of historical drama about something that used to exist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And also, David, <laughs> have cut to credits. Already. Have cut to credits. <laughs> if you're listening to this, David, we love it's you. Too late. It's too late. David, why haven't you been speaking? Yeah, why haven't you said anything, David? <laughs> David, what do you think? Should she hone it or disown it? Footnotes from David. Hone it. David says hone it. That's it. Yeah, done. That's all I need. Sick. That's all right. Bust. Finished. Dead yourself. Yeah. Our actors for this episode were Hannah Donlin, Lydia Lakemore, Louise Wilcox, A.V. Tennyson, Pavlos Christodoulou, and Daniel Spicer. Sound editing, recording, and engineering done by David Denyer. This episode was produced by Pavlos Christodoulou and Daniel Spicer, and executive produced by Dirty Rascal Theatre Company and Jeremy Wong. Bum 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 b